Ready. You want to go ahead and read the thing? I'm going to go ahead and read the thing. In 1872, two men arrived, muddy and bedraggled, at the front door of the San Francisco Bank of California with a large bag of diamonds. They reported that they had located a diamond mine here in the United States. They were reluctant to reveal the location of the mine, but agreed to lead investigators representing several California financiers to the location to get the site evaluated and value their claim on the land. When the investigators arrived, the site was beyond their wildest estimations, with valuable stones literally laying about the ground. Of course it was too good to be true. And of course it wasn't. This is the story of the men who pulled off one of the biggest hoaxes in American history, embarrassing the biggest names in the field of gemstones and politics, and the story of the man who caught them and exposed their scheme. This is a story where even the good guys aren't who they say they are. This is the story of the Great Diamond Hoax of 1872. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, head of gemology here at Relative Disasters Incorporated. And I'm Ella, chair of the Confidence Scheme Department here at Relative Disasters University. <laughs> Thank you so much for that horrifying story. Yeah. Uh, actually, it wasn't really a horrifying story. I want to say no, it was no. like exciting and uh, made me want to go hunt for treasure. I feel like this is one of those stories that should have been made into a movie in the 1970s with like Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Ooh, yeah, you know, like, Steve McQueen. It's got that kind of feel to it where, you know, you just have these two guys who are just like, oh, yeah. Not only did we find diamonds, we found them laying on the ground. You know what it reminds me of is uh, that children's book, The 21 Balloons, where they go to Krakatoa and Krakatoa turns out to be a giant diamond. And they have to be careful to take little tiny diamonds away to sell, otherwise they'll <laughs> crash the market. <laughs> they get really into it, but yes. that's what that part reminded me of. So a little background on diamonds, especially diamonds in the United States. There, there are two diamond mines. Mm-hmm. In the United States. One is in Arkansas called the Crater of Diamonds State Park. It is now a state park. And the other is in Colorado, uh, the Kelsey Lake Diamond Mine, mm -hmm. which has some cool history to it. It was, uh, while it was in operation, it was the United States' only modern diamond mine. No kidding. So, uh, diamonds. Yes. We'll do a little background on diamonds. So, it takes anywhere from 1 to 3.5 billion years for a diamond to form. Most of them form at anywhere from 150 to 250 kilometers in the Earth's mantle, mm -hmm. although some of them come from even further down. And they get, they get released up into uh, the crust and the surface due to volcanic eruptions. And then they are deposited in igneous rocks. Nice. But kimberlite and lamproite igneous rocks are the only ones that can really have diamonds in them. Diamonds, as we know, are are rare and uh, basically what you need to have is you need to have uh, an alluvial deposit to have good diamonds and the largest diamond deposit we believe is in the Popagai crater in Russia and that's kind of cheating 
because those diamonds come from an asteroid impact. Oh, that is cheating. That's totally cheating. Outer space diamonds. I love it. But they may have trillions of carats of diamonds in there, so that's a lot. Mm -hmm. The common misconception about diamonds is that they are formed from highly compressed coal. That is not true. While coal and diamonds are both formed from carbon, coal is formed from buried prehistoric plants, and diamonds have been around longer than we have had plants on the planet. Ooh. So... That's that's my little diamond nerd fact that I that I learned this past week. Uh, the two spots in the United States, the Crater of Diamonds State Park in Arkansas, you can actually go there and dig around in the dirt for diamonds if you want yes, to. Yes, um, I want to. There there aren't really any slash many left. Please don't burst my bubble. Um, I really want to go to Arkansas and dig around in the dirt for some diamonds. Well, while I say that, that means on average, I have a shovel. Two diamonds. Two diamonds per day are found by people visiting the park. That's huge. So you could get, yeah, there you go. I could be one However, of those two diamonds. All, these are all kind of garbage diamonds. Hey, um, hey. <laughs> they don't meet the three Cs. Yeah, these these diamonds don't have uh, the, the sort of clarity, color, and, and carrots that people are looking for for, you know, pretty diamonds. But hey, you could find a diamond. That's pretty you cool. You know, I think that's kind of uh, that's kind of elitist, Greg. There are some, it is a some beautiful elitist. diamonds that are yeah. not clear and are tiny. So the reason that you can find diamonds yep. there is that they, they are on an eroded lamproite volcanic pipe. Very so cool. So you can, you can find not only diamonds, but you can find garnets and amethysts and agates and calcite and jasper and all sorts of fun stuff and of course if you find them you can keep them which is pretty cool you got to pay to get in but that's pretty cool the other diamond mine in the united states is the kelsey lake diamond mine in colorado it's near the uh the wyoming border and it actually had nine kimberlite volcanic pipes wow yes so in the 1990s they found a 14.2 carat white diamond, mm -hmm. uh, which was the, at the time, the sixth largest diamond ever found in North America. Estimated valuation at $250,000 in 1994 money. Mm -hmm. In 1996, they found one they called the Colorado diamond, which is 28.3 carats. It is a yellow diamond. And then in 1997, they found two stones one at 16.3 carats and one at 28.2 carats so those are those are the the two diamond mines that have been you know really explored in the united states uh we're going to talk about neither of those because we're going to talk about a diamond mine that didn't exist i mean when i think north america i don't think diamonds i have to be honest with you yeah no not so much no you need you need a lot of volcanic activity and and eh. so we're going to talk, first of all, about the uh, the brains of the operation, who I kind of really like. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a guy named Philip Arnold. So Philip Arnold uh, was born in 1829. He comes from Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And uh, he ropes his cousin John Slack into this scheme. Another great name. Now, Arnold... Arnold did not finish his formal education. He was a hatter's apprentice. Oh, boy. You know what that means. Yep. <laughs> he was mad as a hatter, yes. He went off to serve in the Mexican-American War, mm -hmm. went to California as part of the gold rush of 1849, 
and he actually found some gold. Hey. So he came back to Kentucky, bought a farm, married, started a family. And then uh, in 1870, he decided to bring his cousin along to file papers to declare that he was in business as a miner and prospector. I mean, so, if you strike it rich during the gold rush, I feel like that kind of ruins yep. you for the rest of your life. Well, he didn't strike it rich, but he definitely, like, he found enough gold to buy a house. That's that's sort of the, the equivalent. Yeah, but I bet he thought about it a lot. You know? Sure. Oh, yeah. So what he did was he and his cousin, John Slack... They went to their friend, a guy named James B. Cooper, who was the assistant bookkeeper for the Diamond Drill Company of San Francisco. Nice. And they bought some industrial-grade diamonds from him. They then mixed in uh, some garnets, rubies, and sapphires that he had bought from people on reservation out in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And then they started their hoax. And this is the, the, the sheer chutzpah of this one is pretty impressive. They walk into the office of George D. Roberts. Now, George D. Roberts was a local businessman in San Francisco. And the reason that they chose him was because they knew he couldn't keep a secret. Uh Aha. So the first thing they did was swear him to secrecy about their previously undiscovered diamond mine that they had just found. Oh, dear. Okay. So within a week or so, they start getting the big fish. First on the line was William C. Ralston, the founder of the Bank of California. Hey! Yes. Uh, They also roped in uh, General George S. Dodge and a number of other, you know, quote-unquote investors who put together an offer to buy out their claim on the land. Hmm. So they took the money. uh, They took a $50,000 down payment. Now, remember, we're talking 1872. So $50,000 is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And they take their down payment and they take a trip to England. Arnold and Slack go over to England and buy a bunch of other uncut diamonds. They spend about $20,000 on junk diamonds, you know, cast-offs and such. And they go up to this area in Colorado, which I love, by the way, because they found a spot... Uh, that is now called Diamond Peak. <laughs> okay. So, on the area just north of what is now Diamond Peak, they start doing what's called salting. Now, salting is nothing more than pulling off a hoax by planting the thing that you're supposed to be discovering in the place that you're supposed to discover it. Right. Okay. So it's when you're salting a diamond mine, you go in there and you scatter a bunch of diamonds around and then you pretend to walk up and be super surprised that you found diamonds there. So they go back to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the people that they were hoaxing were not idle while they were gone in England. Ralston sends a sample of the gems to Charles Lewis Tiffany. The Tiffany. As in Tiffany and Company. Nice. Yes, the Tiffany. And so <laughs> Tiffany sees these diamonds and is like, oh, we are going to swindle the hell out of these rubes. Gets together uh, attorney Samuel Barlow, mm-hmm. uh, General George McClellan, U.S. Congressman Benjamin Butler, and none other than Horace Greeley together. Oh, my. And, and they start to uh, to put together the money to, to buy them out. Now, of course... They know that the, the the amount that they're going to need to buy them out is going to be significant because Tiffany can tell from the value of the stones sent to him 
that even just these little stones are $150,000. Now, is anyone questioning this at any time? No, because here's the here's the beauty of this hoax. Mm-hmm. They intentionally went after people who they knew would treat them like yokel idiots, mm-hmm. people who would who would know better. So these guys are trying to swindle the swindlers. They're swindlers, yes. Who are really swindling them. Exactly. And that's part of why I love this story. This is a real... <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay. I don't hate it so far. So the $20,000 that Arnold had spent on cast-off gems from England, Tiffany looks at them and, and estimates that they're valued at $150,000. So these investors... These investors pile up another $100,000 as another down payment towards the land. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Philip Arnold turns around and takes 8000 of that to go get more uncut gems to keep everybody on the line. Now, at around this time, the investors are like, all right, if we're going to buy this incredibly valuable land from you, we want to at least send some investigators out to the mine just to make sure everything's on the up and up. So the financiers at this point set up a New York corporation called the Golconda Mining Company. Nice. And they with they set this up with a capital stock of ten million dollars. That scans. I mean, uh-huh. they're yep. banking on <laughs> the vast stores of diamonds. And they straight up bribe Benjamin Butler. Uh, remember, he's a U.S. congressman. Right. So. Totally bribable. They give him a thousand of these shares to amend the General Mining Act of 1872 to specifically include the term, quote, valuable mineral deposits, end quote, so that they can allow legal mining claims in the diamond fields that they are sure they have just discovered, okay? And this is interesting. These guys are really thinking yeah. macro level here. Oh, yes. They are going They're going big. They are not going Okay. Home. So they hire a guy named Henry Jannon, who is a mining engineer. And uh, they send him, along with Arnold and Slack and a couple of the investors, to go investigate the site of the mine. Now, Arnold and Slack are very, very clear with everybody that they don't want, you know, they're sure everybody's got everybody's best interests at heart here, but they don't even want to have the appearance of impropriety. So they want to keep the exact location a secret, okay? So what they do is they take, they get everybody uh, to St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. and then take a train up to Rollins in, in the Wyoming Territory and continue on horseback. So they spend four days basically making circles in the countryside on horseback Great. until they arrive at their site. They get there with Henry Jannon, and literally diamonds are on the ground. <laughs> this is where I feel like they might have gone a little bit overboard. <laughs> no, but they did the smart thing. They didn't do they didn't do the thing that that actually trips up a lot of diamond hoaxers and this is not <laughs> oh, a There's a, a pattern a minor of behavior hoax, with diamond hoaxers. There is a pattern of behavior. <laughs> so good to know. This is this is why they did the smart okay. thing here. They actually use uncut stones because nothing gives away your mind quicker than wait a minute, why is this diamond perfectly formed? <laughs> it's a new kind it of diamond. It looks like it's mine. in a Scrooge McDuck cartoon. Why is it perfectly formed? <laughs> So they find all these, and and a diamond that's uncut isn't necessarily like a, a brilliant stone. No, it looks kind of greasy looks, and and uh, yeah. it's not even as pretty as quartz, you know. No, and 
so since they've got stuff literally jutting out of the ground, and oh, by the way, there's some sapphires over there, and there's some rubies in that area, but we don't really care yeah, about Yeah, we're them. here for the diamonds. So Janin writes this glowing report, and somebody, uh, we don't actually know who, but somebody leaks a copy of that very optimistic report to the press. Yeah, somebody. Somebody. <laughs> so because this is so obviously like the best gemstone field in north america right the financiers pay off arnold and slack a total of over four hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the rights to the property wow now four hundred and fifty thousand eighteen seventy two dollars okay so that works out to about fifteen and a half million whoa Four hundred fifty thousand in eighteen seventy two works out to about fifteen million five hundred thirty thousand dollars and change. That'll buy you a nice farm in Kentucky. They shake hands. They sign the paperwork. Arnold and Slack split the money, and uh, Arnold goes home. He goes back to Elizabethtown. He buys five hundred acres of farmland deeded in the name of his wife. Right. So nice yeah. guy. And he buys a, a very nice two-story brick house. And then he, uh, <laughs> he goes into the banking business himself. He buys an Elizabethtown financial institution that had gone under uh-huh. and runs a bank. See, I don't know if this is a good strategy. I feel like if you get $15 million, mm-hmm. your best course of action is to disappear. Here's the thing that's brilliant about this. If you get $15 million through scamming someone. Sure. Right. Sure. I understand. If you scammed Tiffany. Oh, yeah. And, and, a man with resources. And Benjamin Butler and George McClellan and Baron von Rothschild, too. That's another of the investors. Like, wouldn't it be smarter just, just to, to change your sure. name? Go to Mexico, find a nice place on a beach. Well, heading home is a bold move. That's all I'm saying. Heading home and buying a bank oh, yeah. is a really bold. Move. Oh yeah, that is that is absolutely. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, move. I kind of like it. All right. So we'll get to the the repercussions of the diamond scheme, but that's what he does. And his cousin John Slack, he kind of does do the disappearing act. He's a little smarter, I feel like. He moves to St. Louis and buys a casket making company. <laughs> Yes. Only two constants in life, Greg. Hey, it's how you make money, man. And then he takes his business uh, to New Mexico towards the end of his life, Mm -hmm. becoming a casket maker and an undertaker in White Oaks, New Mexico. And he lives a quiet life. And he finally passes away in 1896 at the age of 76. So he lives a good long life after... uh, Walking away. Does from he his do team. anything with the money? Other than his uh, his undertaker business? No, he doesn't. Because he's a millionaire. Yes, he's he's got right. seven and seven and a quarter million dollars. He just spends it all on the casket business. Don't think he spent it all. I think he kind of you know he left some to his kids and his wife and everything else. He just quietly lived. Now, is the casket business a scam? No, nope, legit. He's a genuine casket. Business. That's the thing about these guys. They pull off this one scam. And then immediately retire from, from, you know, a life of larceny into a life of just being regular businessmen. Oh, yeah. Got to kind of respect that. Yeah, I, I genuinely enjoy it. All right. So then something happens. The thing is, scams always catch up to you. That's why we don't recommend scamming people. No, absolutely not. So here is, here is how the scam comes undone. We're going to introduce 
our second hero, because I, I view Philip Arnold as as a hero of this story. He seemed like a decent Is fellow. Is he? I'm seeing him in a pretty gray area. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. He's definitely like more of an anti-hero than a, you know, a white hat kind of guy. But, uh, he, dude, he successfully ripped off Charles Tiffany, Baron von Rothschild. I mean, this guy, this yeah, guy deserves Yeah, but then he bought a, a bank. He went home and bought a bank. <laughs> yes, he did. And now he's scamming like people with mortgages. No, so, no. He was actually, uh, from from all the stuff I could find, he was actually a very good uh, banker. But anyway, so good now, banker. Okay. now we introduce our second hero. Clarence Rivers King. Nice. So Clarence King was born in 1842, was brought up primarily by his mother because his father was part of a trading group with China and his father passed away very early on in his life and so did his two siblings. So he was an only child by the time he was six years old. Yikes. He developed an early interest in outdoor exploration. Being that he was born in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, he had lots to explore. He liked to hang out at the rocks and the beach. He went to school in Boston and New Haven, and then the prestigious Hartford High School at age 13. So he, mm-hmm. did, he did very well for himself. So while in school, Clarence King uh, studied geology, and his favorite teacher was a man named James Dwight Dana, who was one of the geologists who was sent on scientific expeditions to, to the South Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And King graduated with a PhD, just to be clear, because this is, you know, this is the 1800s. What does that mean, though, PhD? It's a Bachelor's of Philosophy. It is a academic degree that usually involves considerable research, either through okay. a thesis or supervised research projects. So he then steals a rowboat from Yale... As you do. (laughs) And takes it on a summer trip along the shores of Lake Champlain, a series of Canadian rivers, and then returns it in time for uh, the fall regatta. So that's not really stealing, though, Greg, is it? That's borrowing. And Yale can certainly afford a rope. Borrowing without letting anyone know that you're borrowing it. (laughs) Uh, So he goes into the field of geology and he excels. He loves geology. When Abraham Lincoln makes the Yosemite Valley area a permanent public reserve, King and a couple of his friends are appointed to make the boundary survey around uh, the rim of Yosemite Valley. Nice. That sounds like a really fun project for a geologist. It's a super, super fun project. Right. You go see the bison, you get your feet warm in the warm springs at the end of a long day. Get to look at lots of rocks. It's it's fantastic. Oh, no. Living a moment here. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) King gets funding from Congress to do an independent survey of the Great Basin region. Nice. He is the one who makes one of the more persuasive arguments for why we need to survey the 40th parallel, okay? Uh, So the geological exploration of the 40th parallel is a huge historical event. We're not going to take a sidebar on it because that could be an entire episode. Just tell me where that is, the 40th parallel. Sure. I'm really not good with... Longitude and latitude. It's the 40th parallel north, okay? So okay. It, it goes from northeastern California through Nevada and eastern Wyoming. Okay, gotcha. And it's important to survey so that they know what kind of ground they're working with when people start moving out there. Right. And it takes them five years. It takes him from 1867 to 1872. Okay. Uh, he publishes a book called Mountaineering in the Sierra Nevada, which is uh, a big hit. And... While he's finishing up the 40th parallel survey, 
a bunch of his fellow geologists are just abuzz with news of a newly found diamond deposit. I mean, to a geologist, that has to be pretty exciting, right? It's going to be amazing. And here's the thing. He he, He happens to be on a train traveling, seated across from Henry Janin, the mining engineer that the people out in New York and San Francisco had sent to evaluate the find. Hey! And all sorts of warning bells go off in King's brain because they're like, wait a minute. We literally just finished surveying this land. There were either, no diamonds. We would either know. we missed. <laughs> we, we could missed, have missed a diamond mine. <laughs> yeah, either we missed a diamond mine where the diamonds are literally on top of the ground or y'all are being taken for a ride. I mean. So he basically hops off that train, gets the next train that's going back west, brings mm-hmm. along his cartographer and his geology friends, and they find the site. And within, like, minutes, King can tell that it's been salted. Because, <laughs> well, because... Because as the a diamonds are lying on the dirt? <laughs> Well, no, you can sometimes get that. But more importantly, as a geologist, King is like, wait a minute, this diamond couldn't have possibly formed in these conditions. This diamond couldn't have possibly formed in these conditions. Not only that, but these two diamonds couldn't have possibly formed in the same conditions. So he's like, he's like, this is impossible. These are these have to be cast off diamonds from gem cutting. And he's absolutely right. Like take a minute to say perhaps there is some wonderful kind of gem deposit that is behaving in an unnatural way. He doesn't even go down that road. Well, he looks into it, but it's it's sort of along the lines of like walking into your own kitchen and finding that mm-hmm. everything's been replaced with bad replicas. You're like, this isn't my stuff. Okay. I mean, the man is a great geologist, so he knows that these are salted diamonds. Absolutely. And he exposes the whole thing. He sends letters to uh, the major investors. It gets picked up by uh, by the newspapers. And All he the becomes, newspapers. He becomes an international celebrity. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> I bet he does. That's some Sherlock Holmes detecting right there. Exactly. It really is. And so he returns home a hero. And uh, he publishes a book called Systematic Geology, mm-hmm. which is the first volume of the oh, eight-volume uh, report of the geological exploration of the 40th parallel. Thanks, what's Clarence. Infor- we would have been fine with one volume. <laughs> could, you, could you just soundbite it for me, bud? Could we have fewer adjectives, please? <laughs> Sorry, but go ahead. But what's, what's important about the book is that it's basically the entire geological history of the West. Cool. And it is one of the greatest geological works of the 19th century. It's really impressive in the field of geology. So our next step in the scam is that as soon as it is found out that this is a hoax, the folks who had invested all this money <laughs> are, of course, none too pleased. And you got to have some you, ice cream. They have a hot bath. They cry a little. They cry it out. No. No. That's not what they do. And of course, you got to understand that that because of this chance meeting, he, uh-huh. this isn't like years later. He literally disco- he he exposed the hoax like literally four or five months after they had gotten their last, you know, check. Oh, no, basically. that's too soon. Exactly. 
We haven't gotten the casket business off the ground yet. What's so, going to happen? So what winds up happening is that the uh, the Golconda Mining Company, mm-hmm. their legal representatives, file suit against Philip Arnold. They can't yes, find yeah. John Slack. <laughs> now, <laughs> I would imagine... Coffin. I would imagine that like people in this, you know, tax bracket would just hire somebody to kill him, but they don't. They sue him. And here's the brilliant thing. <laughs> Philip Arnold just settles. Huh. He doesn't fight it. He just settles the case. Uh, the sum is undisclosed, but he just settles the case. So no matter what, he came out way ahead. Now this almost makes it not a scam anymore. I mean, in the eyes of the law, he's paid his due, I guess. <laughs> he doesn't go to jail? No, he doesn't, he doesn't go to like jail. have to explain himself. No criminal charges are ever filed. And that's because if they had to file criminal charges, mm-hmm. you would open yourselves up to having people like Baron von Rothschild, Charles Tiffany, uh, William Chapton, Chapman Ralston and Horace Greeley and all these important people having to show up in court and give testimony about how this hodunk scammed them. And they are not going to do that. <laughs> the lawsuit okay, is a much better way to make still this go away. Like the time in the history of this country where you would get shot for stealing a horse. Oh God, yes, absolutely. Right? In fact, uh, we're not too far off from that story. So, so bear with me here. Now, listen, I'm I'm in favor of rich people getting scammed. I think it's wonderful, and I love it a lot. <laughs> it's a redistribution of wealth. That's all um, it is. <laughs> I don't hate Philip Arnold, except the no. banking thing makes me think he's a little sketchy. Eh. But this is not a good resolution. <laughs> it like, is this not... doesn't feel satisfying at exactly, all. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's not the it's not the uh, the the screenplay satisfying solution. It's I'm he not gets cheering. sued, he settles the cases, and he's done. It's great. <laughs> uh, okay. So unfortunately, Philip Arnold does not do so well afterwards. He he's fine financially, but mm-hmm. in 1878, another banker in town. And he uh, exchange words. They exchange fisticuffs. Uh, it blows up into a whole feud. And finally, mm-hmm. the other banker shoots him with a shotgun. Hmm. He survives. He survives the actual shotgun wound. Mm-hmm. Um, but it weakens him to the point where six months later, he catches pneumonia and dies at the age of 49. Oh, jeez. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's... That's pretty young. Yeah, so that's that's sort of your your also unsatisfying ending. Hmm. But we do have to talk about our second hero here, Clarence King, because his story does not end here. Clarence King is appointed the first director of the USGS, the United yes! States Geological Survey. I am such a fan of the USGS. Thank you I, for bringing them in. I love the USGS. Anybody who has ever climbed a mountain has seen their little plates on top of the mountains and they're fantastic they have great topographical maps they have amazing topographical maps all in large part due to dudes like clarence king yeah clarence king was mm-hmm. appointed the first director of the united states geological survey yes uh in 1879 now he takes the position on the condition that it only be temporary he doesn't want to you know, he doesn't want to leave the field work, basically. Right. That's the fun stuff. Exactly. He organizes the agency with an emphasis on mining geology, because that's what the local governments want at the time. 
Mm -hmm. and uh, resigns after 20 months in the office, and James Garfield names his successor, a man named John Wesley Powell. And so Clarence King tries to do a couple of things. He tries to use his knowledge of mining geology to open up some mines, but they're not, they're not really successful. He winds up going into debt, but he kind of stabilizes when he meets the love of his life. And this is, this is where we talk about even our hero is, is not who he says he is. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I, I love this story. I love this story so much. Okay. Clarence King meets a woman named Ada Copeland, mm -hmm. who is a former enslaved person from Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, she is African-American, and she's mm -hmm. working as a nursemaid. Uh, she moves to New York City in the mid-1880s, and around 1887, she and Clarence King meet. Now, how do they meet? Because he does not strike me as the kind of person who would be hanging out with nursemaids. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. The The information on this is really scant. All right. All I can picture is like a meet-cute in the park, and a child with a rock comes running up to him. A meet-cute in an elevator, maybe? Like, you know, that would work. So here's the thing. Interracial marriage... Totally illegal. Uh, is, ...is still illegal in yeah. most places, and at the very least, strongly discouraged. And this doesn't sit well with King. Right. So King... <laughs> King convinces Ada Copeland that he is African-American. He just happens to be fair of complexion, and he has blue eyes because of, you know, family history. Really? And he tells her that he is a Pullman porter named James Todd. This does not strike me as the good This is good not a good foundation to for a relationship. relationship. Exactly. This is a lot of lying. Yes. <laughs> Clarence did not strike me as a liar before this. Okay. No, he didn't strike me as one either, but I can see where he's coming from. Like I, he just I, really, really is in love with this woman exactly. and wants it to work out. Okay. And he knows, and he knows that if she were to marry him as Clarence King, mm -hmm. they both might get killed. So he's just gonna play it this way. So they get married in 1888, mm -hmm. and throughout their entire marriage, he never reveals his true identity. Never. He tells her that he is James Todd, who is, you know, a Pullman porter. He works on the railroads while continuing to be Clarence King, the geologist out in the field. Okay, I don't like that. He doesn't have a choice. <laughs> they both don't. He doesn't have a choice because they are going to get, like, that's the thing. Not only is with the marriage I know, but be he's not being honest with the woman that he loves. That's the problem. Then how does, I don't know. I just it's feel like she's not able to make make a choice here because she I, I agree the that's the problem that i have is that he he basically takes away her agency in the union but she genuinely loves him he genuinely loves her they as long as we're sure that they're like madly in love with each other all the stuff about the two of them is absolutely yes okay they have four children yay uh two daughters and two sons their daughters both go on to marry people of European descent in the United mm -hmm. States because it's legal then. And their two sons serve during World War I, but they are classified as blacks and serve in the blacks-only units in World War I. Hmm. So that's a little bit of family weirdness. Do they um, survive? They do. They do. They survive the war and his daughters survive. And it's just, it's, it's a neat little 
little addendum to his story. It's now, just a final... long time to be lying to someone. <laughs> it is a long time to be lying to someone. Like, does he ever tell his kids? So here's how this ends. Okay. Clarence King develops tuberculosis while he's working out in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. He knows it's fatal. His doctors know it's fatal. He's not going to recover. So he writes a letter to Ada. Oh, boy. And he explains to her who he is, why he did what he did, and asks for her forgiveness. And, of course, there's no responding letter because who's she going to send it to? <laughs> okay. And he dies in 1901. And he is transported back to Newport, Rhode Island and is buried there. Uh, Mount Clarence King and Clarence King Lake in Shastina, California are named Mm -hmm. after him. King's Peak in Utah is named after him, and King Peak in Antarctica is named after him. Interesting. He really uh, got around, huh? He was was very, like, you got to understand, this guy was the rock star in the field of geology in the late 1800s. And the U.S. Geological Survey Headquarters Library in Reston, Virginia, is named the Clarence King Library. So, all right. He leaves behind quite a legacy of uh, of all sorts of weird nonsense, as well as blowing the lid off of this bizarre and kind of awesome tale of the Great Diamond Hoax of 1872. Yeah. I got to say, uh the scam that Clarence King perpetuated bothers me a little bit more than the than the diamond mine scam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I the only part of it that that, you know, I, I wish he would have told her while she could have responded to it. But at the same time, it's like you kind of understand where a guy in the late 1800s is going with it in terms of if I tell you, you're probably the one who's going to get killed for it. I'll probably just get thrown in jail, Man, you know, like that's a hard I think it's a hard thing for both of them. And I'm not making excuses for him. He 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 should have told her I'm I'm firmly on the side of. He should have told her, but staring down the barrel of those kind of consequences that I can't even imagine today, I get it. I at least get it. Sure. And uh, and you've got, you know, so Clarence King dying of tuberculosis uh, while on his deathbed telling the woman he loves who he really is. You've got Philip Arnold uh, shot with a shotgun and dying of pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And then you've got John Slack just retiring to a quiet life of being an undertaker. So, you know, kind he's of, the real winner. I, I feel I feel like, yeah, drops out of sight, becomes an undertaker. Good on you, bud. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. That was a wild ride, I have to say. <laughs> it's nuts, right? Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about the deadliest forest fire in American history. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. It occurred on the same day as the Great Chicago Fire. It is completely eclipsed. Really interesting story and just a massive amount of natural destruction. 
That's the Great Peshtigo Fire of 1871. That sounds like an amazing disaster, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.